Help us, Lord, to have ears that are open to your word, eyes that long to see it, hearts that long to know it. We ask that your spirit would transform us as we hear these things, deepen our hope in you, deepen our faith in you, break, in, break our, our grip on the, the useless things more today than, than before. We thank you for the truth of what you have said in the scripture. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Let's start reading at Philippians 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. As we saw last week, Paul considers these these things in verse 5 and verse 6, his identity and his accomplishments, his identity as a circumcised Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, his accomplishments as a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, and and a man who is righteous in the the law, in the the keeping of the law. And he kind of summarizes everything in verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, not lost, not like he held a possession and misplaced it, but the things that were credited to him, the things that were in his benefit are now counting against him. And then in verse 8, he, he expands on this idea and he talks about ultimately what I'm calling riches of Christ, although that phrase is not found in the text. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, how could Paul lose these things how could he suffer loss he he has an attitude he says i count all things to be lost but he also he also says i suffered the loss of all things which is an an actual thing how can you suffer the loss of something without actually losing it and i think it's the same sort of thing as what happened in the nation of india in, in the year 2000 in the year 2000 because of widespread corruption, 
the Indian government decided that 500 rupee notes and 1,000 rupee notes, 500 rupees is about 8 bucks, 1,000 rupees is about 16 bucks, that 500 rupee notes and 1,000 rupee notes overnight would become worthless. The rupee was still their currency. They didn't devalue their currency. And smaller bills, smaller denominations were fine. But today, Wednesday, that 500 rupee note is worth eight bucks. Tomorrow when you wake up, it's worthless. It's just rubbish. It's just a piece of paper. But you can still hold it in your hand, right? I think that that's what Paul's talking about. I'm still a circumcised Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. Those things don't go away through conversion. But the loss is the value of them. They become, uh, they, they become worthless and they really become detrimental. They become worthless because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, he says in verse 8. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And they become detrimental because if he tries to hang on to those things, he can't take hold of Christ. So again, you think of that man in India or that woman in India. They go to bed Wednesday night and their, their, their hands are hanging on to a massive pile of 500,000 rupee notes. And they wake up the next morning and they're still clinging to that pile. Can they have something of value? Yeah, they can, but they have to let go of what doesn't have value in order to take hold of that which does have value. The, the value of Jesus Christ to us is so immense that everything else is worthless in comparison. And in fact, everything else is detrimental in comparison. If we try and cling, on, cling to anything else, we are not going to be able to take hold of Christ. So we're called to repent. We're called to turn away from our acts of sin and rebellion. We're used to that idea. But we're also called to repent of our idolatry. We're, compul- we're, we're called to repent of our false beliefs, of our false religion that says, I can do it myself. I must do it myself. I must do most of it myself. I must do some of it myself. I must deserve God's pleasure and God's approval. I must earn God's pleasure and God's approval. I must merit it. Jesus is worth infinitely more than those ragged pieces of self-righteousness that we can hold in our hands. So what are the riches of Christ? There's surpassing value in knowing Christ. What are the riches of Christ? Well, Paul talks about gaining Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, he says, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Part of the the riches of Christ and the very beginning of the riches of Christ is the righteousness of God within us. We could think of the righteousness, I guess, as the currency of heaven. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 to his disciples, to those listening to him, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of, of heaven. Now the thing is that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was the gold standard. They set the top of the mark. They set the top of the heap in terms of of righteousness under the law. 
They were the ones who knew the law intimately, who followed it. Jesus accused them, of course, of hypocrisy. They kept it unevenly. Paul says, though, in in verse 6, that he was blameless under the law. I think what he's saying there is, as a Pharisee, he wasn't hypocritical. He kept it all to the best of his ability. And he says, so under the law, I'm, I'm found blameless. But that righteousness of his own, he says, is rubbish. That's his identity as a circumcised Israelite of the nation or of the tribe of Benjamin. That's his achievements as a persecutor, as a Pharisee, as a, as a keeper of the law. All of that is, is worthless to him. It's rubbish to him. And instead, he's counting on the righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God as a gift. Romans 3.20 says, By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Justified means made righteous. Actually, means declared righteous. By works of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous in the sight of God. He doesn't say by works of the law, no flesh can although no flesh can because we can't be that good. But even if we could be that good, Romans 3.20 says God won't accept it. No flesh will be justified by keeping works of the law. So, so somebody is going to say, and people have said this to me, but I'll try hard. doesn't matter. doesn't matter how hard you try. But I'll try harder. It, it, it doesn't matter how hard you try. I've, pe- I've had people say to me, I've worked my whole life. I've been faithful my whole life. doesn't matter how long you're faithful. God doesn't care, quite frankly, to be blunt, to be harsh with it. He will not accept your self-righteousness as, an, as, a, as a means of accepting you. And people say that that's not fair. It's, it's not about fairness, it's about justice. We can't earn the kind of righteousness that God demands. And if he demanded that we earn it by our good works, by keeping the law, by being a good person, however you want to define that, how many would actually make it? Were you a good person this week? Every day? Eh. Every moment of every day? At what point in the, did the goodness kind of... Kind of go flying by you at what point did you give up being good at what point did you say i'm tired i'm cranky i haven't had my snickers bar i'm this i'm that At, at what point did you say i'm tired i'm not making any progress forget this i'm not going to do that at what point did you miss the mark you might have hit the mark a few times but i think we overestimate our own goodness by a huge amount so ultimately, if the Lord said, you do, as, you do your absolute best, and if you can reach my standard, I'll let you in. Heaven would be a, an awfully big, empty place. It'd be God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, the holy angels, and no one else. And so he says to us, I have given you a surpassing gift of righteousness, just like we we just sang. You abandon your attempts to earn my pleasure. 
Give it up because you can't do it. And I will grant you my pleasure by your faith in Jesus Christ. I like the way that the English Standard Version puts verse 9. The, the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that depends on faith. Because it depends on faith. But it doesn't depend on anything else but faith. So Romans 3.20 says, By works of the law no, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But the next two verses say this, But now apart from the law, without the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this is predicted in the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, Jew and Gentile. That's the sense of all who believe. It's, it's without distinction as to who you are. Were you raised in a Christian home? Were you not raised in a Christian home? It doesn't matter. Were you raised in a false religious system? It doesn't matter. Have you been a good person? However you define that. It doesn't matter. Have you been as bad as you could be? Probably not. But that doesn't matter. There, there is only one entry point for eternal life and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And based on faith in Jesus Christ, God gives us the righteousness of Christ. There is a great exchange that takes place. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says this, for our sake he made him who knew, knew he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Let, let me define that a little bit more for you. For our sake God the Father made God the Son, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, Jesus, we would become the righteousness of God. God isn't interested in human righteousness. He's not interested in human righteousness. For, for one thing, human righteousness is like unicorns. There's no such thing. Although I, I did see a video of a little girl at a zoo looking at a, uh, what was it? Oh, yeah, it was a, it was a little, little clip springer, so a little tiny deer with two. That's, that's right. I was at the zoo when I was at the zoo. Uh, looking at the little clip springers in, the, in the, the desert dome. When you first come in and they got the two little horns, and this little girl says, oh, Daddy, it's a unicorn. It's a two-horned unicorn. And he just went with it, man. It was really cool. Human righteousness is, is like a unicorn. In fact, it's like a two-horned unicorn. It just, it's not possible. It's not possible. So as you, as you repent of your sin and you repent of your acts of rebellion, you may as well repent of your idolatry of thinking that you can please God. We don't offend God when we stop trying to earn his pleasure. We offend God when we refuse to trust in Jesus Christ and receive his pleasure as a gift. Once a sinner is justified, once a sinner has been declared righteous by God, given credit for Jesus' perfect righteousness in spite of their own sin, everything else comes along with it. So Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything comes with that relationship. 
Nothing is held back. Nothing is partial. Nothing is excluded. There's nothing that is given to some and not others. Now, the New Testament never tries to list the blessings of God because, frankly, the blessings of God, every spiritual blessing is an infinite list. It's not based on us. It's based on him. But Paul gives us, I think, here in Philippians 3, three of those, those spiritual blessings. The first is knowledge of God. Philippians 3.10, just the first phrase there. At the end of verse 8, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Verse 10, that I may know him. And please don't just kind of skip by that really, really quick. We want to get on to the good stuff. But think about what it means to know your God, to know your creator, to know your maker, to know your father. He provides for your needs. He comforts you in your sorrow. He watches over you when you sleep. He sends the rain. He sends the sunshine. He is good and patient and kind and loving and tender and gentle and careful and protective. Jesus says in John 17, 3, in this wonderful prayer that he prays, as he begins praying, he says, this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, not to know about you, not to know of you, but to know you. Adam and Eve were created in in the sinless perfection and perfect relationship with God. And prior to the fall, when God came walking in the garden, there there there, there was no antagonism. There was no conflict. There was no anticipation of, uh oh, what do we do now? There was just peace. There was just contentment. There there was just utter joy. Sarah comes in with Iris. And Iris sees me and most of the time she just beams. There's no conflict there. There's no argument there. There's no anticipation of, uh oh, what's he going to say now? She just basks and she does that with everybody Aaron's got her right now. She just basks in the joy that people have in her. Well, imagine that on an adult level at a a fully known level. Not this childish, infantile, truly infantile level of, of just a moment of pleasure. But the depth of knowledge, that's what Adam and Eve had. The great tragedy of the fall is not our filthy consciences, although that's a tragedy. It's not the conflict that we have in our own lives and with one another. That's a tragedy too. It's not having to struggle to make a living and survive in this world. It's not facing sickness and poverty. It's not even facing death. It's the loss of that relationship with our God, with our Father. I think the number one issue facing Christians... is a hesitancy about coming to God as Father. The feeling that they're just not quite there. The feeling like like there's some thing hanging over their heads, that he's not quite pleased with them, that he's upset with them in, in one way or another, or they're not doing it well enough. See, we lack that kind of peace that Adam and Eve had. And, and 
as much as we can blame them for what happened to us, we can feel sorry for them. We've never known that kind of fellowship with God. We were born into rebellion. And so this conflict is something we're used to. We're not used to peace with God. They lost it. And it's not hard to imagine that for the rest of their lives, they had this deep ache that no one else could comprehend because of what they had lost. But through Jesus Christ, sinners are brought back into peace and intimacy with the Creator, with our Father, and we have the promise of eternal joy with Him. With Him. It's, it's so interesting that the heaven tourism books, those, those made-up stories about this kid or that kid or that person or that guy who died and went to heaven and came back and all the stories are different and all the experiences are different and they're so strange. It's amazing that those books talk about anything but God. Do you really think that if you died right now and went to heaven and then came back in 10 minutes or 30 minutes, that Jesus would be the last thing you'd mention? When his glory fills the temple? When he's the focus of every angelic creature in heaven? Don't you think that if you died now and stood in his presence, you wouldn't have to go look for him? If you want to know why those books are a lie and a fraud upon the Christian public, it's because of that. It's the idea of I died and I got to see grandma. I I died and I got to see this and I got to see green. Forget all that. You get to see Jesus. And, And right now, that doesn't make sense to some of us. Right now, that doesn't really compel us and we we've gone to these stories and these hopes about filling it with everything else but in the moment of your glorification when all of the other hindrances have been stripped away from you when the flesh is gone and sin is gone and rebellion is gone there is no one you will want more than your god so when paul says that i may know him he could have stopped right there And that's really sufficient. He goes on, though, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I think that the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings has to do with our daily life in Christ, our daily partnership in Christ. The point of Jesus' resurrection The point of the power of Jesus' resurrection is not having resurrection power. That's a common phrase in in some movements and in some churches. Resurrection power. We're going to have resurrection power. As though that means anything. It doesn't mean anything. That takes the power that raised Jesus from the dead and makes it some sort of of an ambiguous, vague, thing as opposed to this exercise of power that reverses death and that changes everything we have not yet come to know the fullness of the power of his resurrection and we won't until we die and are raised but we begin to see glimpses of it in the work that he does in the lives of people 
And so with Pat, we're praying for Betty, this, this elderly lady that Pat has sent books to that explain the gospel. We're praying that the Lord will touch her heart and call her and grant her life and faith. Can you imagine living 98 years of your life without any knowledge of your creator and then coming into the knowledge of that creator a year or two or months or weeks before death and how precious that would be. Pat and all of those around Betty would have the opportunity to understand a little bit of what the power of Jesus' resurrection is. It's not just the power of his resurrection, it's also the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. He elevates everything about our lives. He elevates our hardships and our pains so that they glorify him and they reveal his faithfulness. And they teach us to to be obedient. Hebrews 2.10 says this, It was fitting that God, for whom and by by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. It's not that he was imperfect before. It's that suffering revealed his perfection. And that under the intense pressure that he faced of temptation and of physical hardship and relational issues as people turned their backs on him and hated him and betrayed him and tried to kill him and his family accused him of being insane. All of the things that he faced, he came through in perfect faithfulness and perfect obedience. And he suffered through that, remaining faithful. And Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of that. Not just the agonies that he felt, but the faith and the obedience that he had as he went through those things. This isn't about introducing some sort of law keeping into this, by the way. As though we've been saved by grace and we've been justified by grace. And now all we have to do is suffer for a while. And once we've suffered for a while, God will be happy with us. He's perfectly pleased with you if you're in him. Suffering isn't about making you acceptable. Suffering can be about sanctification. It can be about knocking that thing out of our hand that we shouldn't have or that's dangerous for us or that's harmful to us. It's it's one thing to see your child as a toddler sitting on the ground eating worms. It'd be a very different thing to see your child on the ground reaching for a rattlesnake. And you jump and you yell and you shout and you run. If you ever want to see somebody run fast, be at our house when Linda's out in the front yard and Evie starts running for the street. Linda puts on a burst of speed. It's like she's got a turbocharger. Joining Jesus in his, the power of his resurrection, knowing the power of his resurrection, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings, I think has to do with our daily lives. So Jesus called men to follow him, and they followed him, and they were with him. And he says in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And in John chapter 9, he says to his disciples, We must work the works of him who sent me. 
Jesus said, I'm all about obeying my father and doing what he's, what he's called me to do. And I have called you to come with me so that we together can obey him. And that call goes on to us. It's not about Jesus joining you in your work. It's about you joining him in his. To know the power of his resurrection and to join him in his suffering, I think, means to be in fellowship and partnership with him in our lives where we are. A few Christians in the last 2,000 years, relatively few, just a small number, have been kind of specialists. They, they've, been, they've been pastors or teachers or they've been missionaries. They've gone overseas. They've, they've stopped doing this, all of this stuff, and they've th- focused themselves narrowly. But the vast majority of Christians over the course of the church have gotten saved and been converted and then stayed where they are. They've stayed on the farm. They've stayed in the schoolroom. They've stayed in the office. They've stayed in the home. And they've served where they are. And they've been faithful where they are. If anybody ever tells you, in order to serve Christ fully, you have to leave where you are and go do this thing, they're lying to you. God might call you to go somewhere else. But for the most part, he leaves us where we are. And he says, be faithful there. Do your part there. Know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings there. And Grace and I I go on this trip. We're going to muscle through and and try and and spend Saturday night or Friday night in Newark, New Jersey. I know, Newark. So that Saturday we can hop on a subway and, and spend the day in New York City. So you can be praying for us. Cities are, are, I don't know, we could do a show of hands. How many of you like cities? I love cities. I love busy, fast-paced urban environments. I love the, the fact that they're absolutely packed with people. I was, I was raised in Southern California. I'm just enthralled by that. I'm just enthralled by that. I'd love to be in in the shoes of somebody like John MacArthur or Tim Keller to to have a church in a massive urban center because of all the people who are right there. But the Lord has us here. And and I think, wow, I'm in a town of 24,000 people. Some of you have been on farms with not even 20 people. So how can you possibly be faithful in that little place? or on the road, or doing the things that you do. You just do. You just continue to trust him. And if the Lord gives you an opportunity to reach out, you reach out. The third blessing I think that we see, the, the first one was knowing him. The second is in this daily intimacy and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And the third one is eternal hope. Being conformed to his death, verse 10 And then into 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Being conformed to his death, being like him in his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's letters show that he never drifted from the gospel. The gospel remained the focus for him 
always. He never treated the gospel as the doorway into eternal life. And once you've passed through that doorway, you're done. The gospel was an an ongoing reality for him. It not only has to do with salvation and sanctification, but with daily comfort, with correction spiritually. It has to do with how the church functions, but how we function in our relationships, how we work, how we parent, everything, everything. And so he constantly makes reference to elements of the gospel, to repentance, to forgiveness, to being made whole, to being joined with Christ. Because we are working this out and we are living this out on a constant basis. Salvation is not just a one-time process. There is a historical aspect to it. August 13th, 1978, the Lord converted me. He converted me from a sinner to a saint. But I was a saint in the raw. And anybody coming across me on that day would not have seen the saint in the, in the dirt clod. But that day, he saved me. He converted me. I was saved. It's a historical moment of my life. On that very same day, he began sanctifying me. And I am now in the, in, still in the process of that sanctification. And it will go to the moment that my physical body dies. And so that was 40 years ago now. By his grace, I'm right in the middle and I've got 40 years to go. But who knows? I don't know. And then at physical death comes glorification. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's God's promise to bring us through this sanctification process into glorification. He won't fail. So I can look back at this historical reality, and some of you can too, this historical reality of this is when I, can, was, this is when I was converted. And we can look at that moment in the future when we will be glorified. And we're, we're good with having been saved. And we're good with shall be saved. But being saved is a pain. And this is where I get discouraged. I don't get discouraged about the historical thing. I know that that happened. And I have his promise that the glorification, the shall be saved will happen. But right now the being saved is hard. And there are times that I look at my life There are times that I consider where I am and where I feel, where I feel I ought to be, that I just get discouraged. I can be tempted to think it's not working, or it's not working as fast as it it ought to be working, or there are things that should have been done with in my life before now. But praise God, I can resist those temptations because of the promise that he has made. That he is going to finish the good work that he has started. And so Paul says, look, I know that I'm going to be conformed to the death of Christ. I don't think he means some high spiritual reality there. I think he means I'm going to die. And I'm going to die as Jesus died, not crucified for the sins of the world. I'm going to die as Jesus died in faith, in obedience, growing in the Lord. And with that physical death then comes the absolute promise of resurrection. Not resurrection immediately, 
The biblical word, the Bible word, resurrection, can't mean anything but the resurrection of a dead body. It doesn't mean some spiritual thing. It's not a, a picture of some spiritual relationship with God. It means that this body that my children will one day lay to rest or burn to ash and put in a pot and stick it in the ground or dump somewhere. I don't care. Elliot, you can get a backhoe and pop me out in the field. I don't, I just really don't care. But wherever, whatever happens to that body, that body will be raised from the dead. And it will be raised from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a spiritual body, not an invisible body, but a, a physical body that is suited for a spiritual eternal existence. So you will look like you. You will look like you if sin had never impacted your life. Which means we'll have hair. But those of you who are vertically challenged might still be vertically challenged. Well, God designs all kinds of shapes and sizes. Whatever aspect is of sin will be gone. Whatever aspect is by the design of of humanity according to the will of God will be perfected. You don't have to worry about recognizing anybody in eternity. If you knew them here, you'll recognize them there. There's no reason to think that you wouldn't because that body, just like Jesus' body was raised from the dead, will be raised from the dead. So we who are in Christ have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have been given the gift of Jesus' own righteousness and fully accepted by God that's done. You're accepted. Live like it. We have these promises of knowing Jesus and through him knowing our God and knowing him perfectly forever. We have this promise of daily intimacy with him as we, as we experience the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And we have the incomparable eternal hope of the resurrection and what that means as we're with him. And Paul says, because of all of that, all the things that I thought were a plus just don't matter to me. All the things that I thought were important to me and that I needed to preserve and protect are worthless. I gladly let them go. I gladly count them as lost for the sake of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word and for your goodness to us. Thank you for your holiness. Lord, it's easy for us to get discouraged and to think that our our state right now is the state that we will be in for all eternity. Or to even think that because we're still in the process of sanctification that we won't be glorified, but you're faithful. You will finish the work that you began. It's not based on our ability to please you, but on our trusting you and accepting that you have already justified us, you have already declared us righteous, you're making us righteous now, and you will perfectly finish that work. 
So, Lord, let those promises settle down into our hearts, in our minds, into our souls, so that we would trust you. Help us to get beyond those doubts and lay these things to a rest that we may enjoy you more and know you better. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us today and ask that you would bless them and remind them of your love, your favor, and your care. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.